0: Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to
1: Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair, It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the
2: Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me
1: right now. You like me!
3: I'm the
1: king of the world! There's a mistake.
2: Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture.
1: I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here welcoming back to the continent and to their homes. We have our senior writer, Joanne Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson.
3: Hello.
1: Are you speaking Greek now, Richard, actually? Can Kalimata, you understand me now? I would say. <laughs> uh, also joining us this week, we have our TV critic, Sonia Soraya, who, as far as I know, has just been doing her job and not on a fabulous vacation. But I wish. <laughs> <laughs> You can t- you can hear how jealous I am of both Richard and Joanna <laughs> of their vacations. We are all back together, and there's a lot to talk about, including Oscar news. We learn about who this year's honorary Oscar winners are going to be, so we'll talk about that briefly and do a quick check-in on Little Gold Men's number one favorite movie of all time, Rocket Man. (laughs) Um, And then we're going to jump into the upcoming season premiere of Big Little Lies, which is back for its second season with its whole raft of amazing cast and Andrea Arnold directing. And then in the second half of the episode, we're going to share an interview that I did with Alan Yang, who is the co-creator of the Amazon series Forever, which I really like when it aired uh, last year and talked to him about how that series came together. But first of all, Oscars. The honorary Oscars are no longer handed out during the award ceremony, which is a bummer. They'll be handed out at a separate ceremony in the fall. Uh, And this year's honorees are a really fascinating combination of people, as usual. You've got David Lynch, the director of Mulholland Drive and Blue Velvet and many others. You've got Gina Davis, the actress and uh, kind of someone referred to her as being Time's Up before Time's Up. And then you have Lena Vertmuller, who was the first woman nominated for Best Director Oscar, and then the actor Wes Studies, Cherokee American, and has uh, kind of done a lot for Native American representation on screen. I think these are great nominees and winners. What about you guys?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that something about Gina Davis. You know, she's an Oscar-winning actress for *The Accidental Tourist* back in the '80s. Uh, you know, her sort of movie star uh, has waned a bit, um, perhaps, but maybe, maybe both. You know, because the industry and what it, how it, <laughs> how it treats women who t- pass forty, but also maybe she was busy with other things, which is all this activism she's been doing. She runs a women's film festival, I believe, in Arkansas. You know, she's been doing a lot, sort of "quote unquote" behind the scenes um, for years, and so I think that you know. The Academy certainly is made up of people who hopefully would would, would recognize that more than the kind of casual moviegoer would. Um, So to kind of highlight that work, I think, is really, really neat. And also, I think that Wes Studi, an actor who anyone who sees his face face is like, oh, yeah, I've seen him in X, Y, and Z, but I wonder how many people actually know his name. So for him to get this kind of here's his name, it's going to be, you know, engraved on the statuette like permanently. um, That's pretty cool, too. So this is them doing some thoughtful things, I think.
0: Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great uh, moment to honor David Lynch. Um, as you all know, uh, the Twin Peaks Return was the greatest film um, of the Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> and On co- home controversial <laughs> opinion. I feel attacked no. right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I'm a huge David Lynch fan and I love that. I love that they're honoring him. And, and like, I can't wait to see how he receives being honored in this way. <laughs> like, that's almost ex- as exciting as anything else. Quick sidebar. Uh, I think I've talked about this on this very podcast before, but I just, like, can't let a moment go by and not talk about this. If you've not watched the YouTube video of David Lynch Makes Quinoa, it's just exactly what it sounds like. David Lynch makes quinoa. It's the weirdest, best thing I've ever seen. So, in honor of David Lynch's honorary Oscar, please do yourself a solid uh, today and watch that that video in his honor and then wait for his exception speech to be even weirder and more fun. So, David Lynch makes quinoa. is like the most California thing you've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> no, here's the mi- real mystery of that. It's like 20 minutes. And it's really just him making quinoa, but at one point he steams some broccoli and he has broccoli florets in like a Trader Joe's bag. And I am I, I am just so curious why David Lynch buys his broccoli from Trader Joe's and not like a whole crown. Like florets in a bag? Does that <laughs> seem like David Lynch to you? I don't know. I have a lot of questions. So please watch this video. Just Google David Lynch quinoa and enjoy yourself. I hope he makes broccoli in his Governor's Awards speech. <laughs> um,
1: the Governor's Awards will be on October 27th, I guess in keeping with the entire awards season being moved up a couple weeks. It's a little bit earlier than it has been in years past. So... Um, We'll be looking out for that, hopefully sending somebody to it and uh, watching whatever all these amazing people say in their speeches. Okay, now for a Rocket Man minute. The movie is out. We've been anticipating it for so, so very long. Joanna, or or Richard, you told us about it from Cannes. um, And, Joanna, you were talking to Richard then. Then you finally saw it for
0: yourself. You just want to talk about Rocket Man, right? I do. I saw – I actually – this is so on brand for Little Gold Men. I saw, like – FYC screening at the ArcLight in Los Angeles, and Taron Edgerton was there, Jamie Bell was there, Bryce Dallas Howard was there, and Dexter Fletcher was there. And um, the Q and A was sort of a, uh, a little bit of a shambles, as these things sometimes are. Um, but it was it was lovely to see the movie at last because I've been long anticipating it. I am not like over the moon for Rocket Man, uh, to be honest with you. I, I give it like a B plus, but I'm over the moon for like. A lot of rock and man. It's so it's uh when it decides to be sort of an unabashed musical, uh it is so exactly my speed and so fantastic. And Taryn is incredible through the whole thing. Jamie Bell, fantastic through the whole thing. Tate Donovan turning in this like extremely Like, over-the-top great performance. Really, really big fan of all of that. Uh, There's just, you know, when people were critiquing it out of can for being a bit of a rote musical biopic, those are the parts of the film that really kind of suffer. Uh, Elton John was, uh, you know, an executive producer and had a real hand in this. And you can see him sort of working through, maybe working through some of the things that he either still feels like frustration over or guilt over, like uh, his brief marriage to a woman or his relationship with his parents. And those notes just get get hit harder, I think, than they need to. Like, I think we get it, and then they keep going back to that well. Um, And it's not like I want to just shut my brain off and listen to Elton John music. Like, I don't mind the the modulating, the, like, reality and the darkness of what Elton John's life was when he hit rock bottom and his relationship with substance abuse and all that sort of stuff. But, like, I, I feel like it just... Like the balance is off a little bit, and the, then as a result, the film feels a little over long. That being said, you know, like whatever it was, I didn't see in Bohemian Rhapsody, I do see in Rocket Man in terms of just being like transported by a transformative performance from Taron Edgerton. There are moments. There's a sequence. There's a pinball wizard sequence that's like a montage of like him in like all these famous Elton John stage costumes, and there were moments where I was like, did they CG Elton John's face onto Taron because like. Like he's just completely gone, and it's just Elton. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of like a lot of Rocket Man.
1: Richard, have you been sitting with it since you saw it at Cannes, or did it just vanish from your brain?
3: Well, it's the movie that surprisingly more than the Tarantino, probably because it's out now that people have been asking me about, like my mom and other you know sort of friends who are stateside and curious about about that movie. I think the Tarantino feels a little more distant still because it's not out till July. Um, but yeah, I mean, it sat well with me. I find myself recommending it for a lot of the reasons that Joanna just said. You know, good performances, good music, whatever. You know, I think our issues with kind of the roteness of bi-musical biopics clearly does not bother some other people. So I'm sort of kind of almost stayed away from that criticism when when recommending it. And I think that you know the money bears out. Interestingly, I mean, it was it was number three at the box office in its opening weekend. It made 25 million dollars against what's reported to be a 40 million dollar budget, but was I'm sure was more when when marketing and all that is concerned. Um, but that's a pretty strong showing. It was up against aladdin in the second week and godzilla king of the monsters which was number one but was a huge step down from the last godzilla so it was actually kind of a weirdly soft weekend at the box office you know in the middle of the summer um but there was rocket man you know holding holding up pretty well number three so i'll be curious to see if it has the legs that bohemian rhapsody did you know I, I guess that really depends on word of mouth which it feels like so far after one weekend is pretty good yeah, yeah Bohemian so.
1: Rhapsody opened to fifty-one million, which yeah. I had f- somehow forgotten. That's insane. So yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess expecting Rocket Man to be, to be Bohemian Rhapsody is kind of unfair since that movie was such a gigantic hit. But it does seem to be doing very well for
0: itself. I will say that I think I think Rocket Man is a little bit more challenging than Bohemian Rhapsody because of, like the the darkness that it tries to grapple with. And I like commend it for grappling with that. But like,, you know, if Bohemian Rhapsody excelled on word of mouth of people sort of tapping their toes as they come out of the theater and they're like, "Oh, I love Queen. You love Queen. Let's go watch this Queen movie. Um, I don't know that Elton John has exactly that same impact. Um, but I think, I don't know. I, I really hope people check out Terrence's performance because it's really something
3: incredible.
1: Well, I will see recommend eventually, so I will contribute toward that box office total and, uh, you know, I'll push it over the top. <laughs>
3: Well, you you typically spend $50 million every time you buy a movie ticket, right? So that's, Yeah, that's that, true. Yeah, well, yeah. I, have to,
1: I have to buy out all of the movie theaters in a 100-mile radius right. so that I feel comfortable watching it by right. myself.
3: But I mean, that's what it needs. I mean, it needs more money if Taryn Anderson is going to have any sort of legs, I think, um, in terms of Oscar yeah. stuff because, you know, this is now we're six-plus months out. So, you know, it's of crucial importance for that kind of movie that it be a resonant crowd success uh, in order for the Academy to sort of take notice. Um, and I don't, doesn't feel like it's going to become that just yet it also has a much longer runway than bohemian rhapsody did like bohemian rhapsody was so fresh in everyone's mind when they were voting for things so we shall see i mean you know and again it it asks another i mean granted the movie was coming out so soon but it's like what does a big splashy can premiere get for a movie i guess we'll really find out the answer to that question when um tarantino's movie opens in july
0: the thing I will say is that uh, Taron Egerton has been doing so much press around this, like so many interviews. He's, so he's like, he's going for it. And can you blame him? And the other thing I was going to say, and this is uh, deeply unprofessional of me, is I just I, I, I would like to recommend this movie... Purely on the strength of the fact that A, Richard Madden sings, B, he sings in, like, a silky kimono. So, like, you know, if you're a Game of Thrones fan and you want to watch Richard Madden sing in a silky kimono, why wouldn't you? How then, is that a professional? You know.
1: That's the kind of insight we pay you for. <laughs>
0: there you go. That's my, <laughs> that's my professional recommendation for Rocketman.
1: Okay, so let's talk about something that uh, will also soon be available for everyone to see in the comfort of your own home. Big Little Lies is returning to HBO. Uh, Probably no one really expected it to be back after the first season since it seemed like such a compact, uh, limited thing. Um, It's back with all the original cast, plus Meryl Streep. Uh, Andrea Arnold has taken over as director this time. Sonia, you're going to be reviewing it for VF.com, so uh, we brought you in to talk about it. Um, So I guess just as an overall thing, do you think it kind of makes the case that Big Little Lies should have come back at all? It
2: sort of does, but it's just because I really like spending time here. I mean, I don't know right now. So they they sent us three episodes to screen, and I... Three of seven, right? It's seven or eight, but I it, maybe it's seven, because the first season was seven for sure. It's such a weird number. I don't know. I don't know exactly really weird understand. number. I am still trying to figure out if the story is going to like go somewhere that is even nearly as satisfying as the first season. You know, I only have a little bit to work off of, but... As like pure soap opera or as, if that's what you want to call it, or just being totally invested in these characters and what they're going through, I'm like very invested. Um, you know, Meryl Streep comes in this season and she plays Celeste's mother-in-law and there is something really terrifying and intense about her whole relationship to you know her son, uh, who, spoilers for the first season, is now deceased and is also revealed to be a rapist and an abuser. Um, the, the Alexander Skarsgård character. The Alexander <laughs> Skarsgård character. Um, and Celeste, who's Nicole Kidman, um, is raising two sons of her own and trying to not replicate the mistakes of the past, but also mourn her husband, who was also bad to her. It's complicated. Meryl's entire performance is like, I mean, her character is just like everything is turned up to 11. Like she nakedly despises uh, Maddie, who is Reese Witherspoon's character. She's very like really blunt and says things that are inappropriate and in this like very appearance focused Very wealthy environment, there's something really strange and off putting about her. But it's also like really delicious to watch
1: her kind of mess with everything. I was so struck, like, having watched the trailer, I made her look like she was going to come in and be like threatening and powerful, like in this kind of what we think of as like a Meryl Streep mode of where she has authority. And she comes in as this weirdo with this bad hair and she's got fake teeth, which I told Joanna I was very proud of noticing because I'm usually really bad at noticing fake teeth. (laughs) Um, So she's intimidating, but she's strange. And she's got this like passive aggressive like you know oh little old me thing going for her before she then like attacks. So I, it was such a weird energy to bring to the show with all of these alpha women kind of already um, you know sizing each other up.
3: But I think it's also a crucial energy. I mean, in that shows that have a second season, even if the second season was planned the whole time. When, it, when it's been been such a phenomenon hit as Big Little Lies was a word of mouth thing that people were watching week to week, you know, to get in progressively bigger numbers is there's obviously the temptation of like, well, we have to do more of the same because we have to deliver to the fans what they want. They they want Reese Witherspoon acting very type A and kind of nuts. They want Nicole Kidman sort of hurt and fraught and, you know, and and, and they want Laura Dern commanding and you know, sort of overbearing. And that's all there in, in I've only seen the first episode of the new season and then here comes Meryl Streep. I mean, they jump, they dump her right in. I mean, she like in like the third scene there she is doing her thing um, which I thought they would mete out her reveal a lot more slowly so I kind of appreciate that that they just throw her in with everybody else and I think that that weird energy is a necessary counterbalance to the, the writer. It's David E. Kelly once again working with Leanne Mor- Moriarty who wrote the original book. Um, the impulse to be like, okay, f- here's the fan service stuff but here's also this new added element marking it as a new season. Whether or not that'll be successful, I have not yet seen, but I think that maybe this needed a lot of Meryl Streep right away um, just to remind us that we're not being served uh, the, the same meal, just kind of reheated.
2: I, you're totally right, I think. I mean, I think that, so with her addition, it becomes six women at the at the center of the story. And I think that what I'm sort of perceiving, and, and I don't think this is much of a spoiler, is that like there's sort of two big themes that are being kind of dealt with. And you can sort of see, like, a group of the characters are more focused on, like, parenting, for example, which, you know, is like a subsection of the whole show. Um, but, like, because Meryl's character was the parent to Alexander Skarsgård's character, and now the grandparent to these two twins, and she doesn't know this yet, but another, another boy in their class, there's this whole thing about Raising your boys to be good. Like, how do you do that in this world? How do you how do you raise your children in general to be appropriately prepared for a world where, like, climate change is knocking on the door, which is something that gets addressed later in the season? And then on the other side is the tension that has always been there at the show that really comes out with... Bonnie, Zoe Kravitz's character, Jane, Shaylene Woodley's character, which is the outsider-insider distinction in in this clique of mom's. Um, that like Maddie, Reese Witherspoon's character, clearly has right from the start, has so much anxiety about whether or not she really fits in. And so as a result, like really overperforms her uh her fitting into this place. And I'm not I don't want to spoil too much but okay so like one of the characters their cash flow gets threatened uh there is obviously a lot of judgment from people around them they're called the Monterey 5 so there's like these really interesting things that are being tweaked right from the start and and I totally agree with Richard like I think The second season, I'm so glad it's starting with these big things thrown at the wall because it makes me feel like there's something more to say, that it's not just trying to milk the first season for whatever drama it could.
0: Something that I really like about it is that the, um, I think, you know, I've I've watched the first three episodes and I think the temptation would be there to throw in. I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler to say that there like isn't another big mystery And that's something that I really like. I guess the mystery is, like, will they be able to survive what they did in season one? You know, that's the question. But it's not a, like, the the way the season, the first season unfolded, it was like, it was a whodunit sort of, you know. And there was the whole, like, Greek chorus and interrogation and all of that sort of stuff. And all of that is gone. Um, And it's, so it's, you know, I thought they were going to, like, cook up another mystery for season two. And I think that's a mistake a lot of... Uh, A lot of these uh, limited series shows that try to... I'm thinking of, like, specifically 13 13 Reasons Why that try to outlive their source material. Is they're like, ooh, let's just, like, create another exact version. You guys have been talking about this all along, but, like, the way in which they didn't chase another mystery, I was really gratified by that. And then the other thing that I really liked, and you've already sort of touched on this as well, but the expansion of Zoe Kravitz's Bonnie, like... uh, The way that character operated in the first season... And the way in which she's involved in the end of the first season, I think was a big question mark for a lot of people because it's made clear in the books why, you know, in the book, why she would be sort of more involved in in what happened at the end of season one. And season two, you know, I think Reese had made some murmurs about like, oh, we'll see more of Bonnie. And I was like, okay, will we? There's so many women in this like (laughs) thing. Will we have more? And then it absolutely is delivering on that as far as I can see that like so much of what Uh, Zoe Kravis' character did uh, and the way in which it's affecting her is such a huge part of this season two. And I I love that. I love it for that. Um, I wanted to ask maybe Richard, because uh, Katie and I were talking about this a little bit before, um, like yesterday when I was watching the episodes, you and I, Richard, talked a lot about Jean-Marc Vallée's like distinctive style when we were doing the Sharp Objects run on Still Watching and all of that. I'm not as familiar with Andrea Arnold's work. How much do you think she is having to sort of ape what Jean-Marc Vallée does, which is so distinct, and how much of it is her own style? I mean, from what from what you've seen or what you know of Andrea Arnold's style generally and how it might match Jean-Marc Vallée's, like, does this feel like a new piece? And maybe, Sonia, you're more familiar with Andrea Arnold's work than I am as well, but like a new piece under a new director or someone trying to match... The person who came before them
3: well i think that was the big question when valet left and and i think that his presence in the first season was a huge part of us feeling you know those of us who didn't really want a second season that it was a discrete piece of filmmaking mm-hmm. essentially that like it it told the story that yes it ended on a tiny bit of ambiguity with the detective played by Marin dungees watching them but i like that little bit of like this isn't over for them but it's over for us we we're done watching their story and valet's signature style that we later saw in sharp objects was so, such a big part of that. And mm. so when you find out there's a season two, but he's not involved, you're like, well, well then what? what is the show going to not only look like, because valet's filmmaking style is not just a visual thing. There's a there's a cadence that transcends visuals. It's auditory. It's just a feel. There's a feeling to it. And clearly HBO wasn't going to completely abandon that because that was a successful factor of the show. And so they brought Arnold on, who's this lauded filmmaker, beloved at Cannes, and, you know, in the sort of Euro indie art house world, um... Clearly, she's been asked to keep up the house style while employing some of her own sort of individuality. I would think more with how she works with the actors, maybe. But I have to say, and maybe this is cynical, you watch it and you're like, okay, Andrea Arnold took this for the money. You know, <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> opportunity to work with a lot of great actors, but she wasn't going to get to do it completely her way because there was already this guy who'd established what the show looks and feels like. And she's more than capable of existing within that world. But I think it feels more like. You know, I've done all these indie films. I have great reviews. Here's an interesting paycheck that will maybe put me more in the minds of, you know, the U.S. and and people looking for interesting directors. Um, You know, I've spoken to so many interesting directors who um, are clearly, you know, more and more just pointed at television because that's where the, the interesting work could be, and I think that Andrew Arnold's of that. So while I'm still long for a series that's definitively hers and not sort of her continuing on with somebody else's style, I think she acquits herself well in what I've seen.
2: I'm not familiar with her earlier work, but I mean it's interesting, like being a director on TV is just such a different experience. Like, I mean Jean-Marc Vallée had more freedom than, than she has had with this season because he was creating the visual style, but directors on TV are expected to subsume their vision to the party line, I suppose.
1: And it's worth noting that Jean-Marc Vallet has an editing credit on at least the first two episodes. Um, so he is creatively involved uh, right. to some degree. I mean, and it certainly still looks
2: edited by him, I have to say. I mean, the yeah, quick... it does. The quick <laughs> fantasy sequences and the cuts to the waves. But then there are some, there are some aspects of it which I felt certain that he would not have quite gone in that direction. And I think specifically it's with Bonnie's character that maybe I'm reading this, that I'm reading into, because I think that she was not really an interior person in in the first season. She had some interesting moments, but I think that this season spends a lot more time with trying to understand the world from her perspective and you see things through her eyes. There are some fantasy sequences that are through her eyes. And to me, that's where I saw the most difference from the first season. So I wonder if that's uh, that's how Andrea Arnold was getting her creative license out or something. But that's a really interesting point. I genuinely, I don't
3: know. I mean, I think the interesting thing also is that in, in Arnold's career before this, I mean, she did uh, Fish Tank, which kind of introduced Michael Fassbender to a lot of people. Oh, I love that movie. Um, she did yeah. American Honey. Um, and then she had some stuff previous to that. Is that she before this show has not really been a director who works with big celebrities and big characters. It's much more naturalistic, you know, mm. and I think that, th- that so this affords her an interesting opportunity to do that, you know, to work with Meryl Streep in a wig and false teeth. I mean, that <laughs> is not an Andrea Arnold thing to do or hasn't been in her career up to this point. But also, in, maybe in Bonnie or in new sort of avenues of the story that are introduced to sort of to shape them the way that she wants to shape. You know, she likes people, at least in American Honey, certainly, to. Dis- she liked her actors to discover sort of where they were going and how the thing took shape. And this obviously has to travel on much more, you know, set rails. But yeah, I'll be curious to see by the end of the seven episodes where the Andrea Arnold of it stands, because Valet has, in, you know, with, with the first season of this and with Sharp Objects, really was turning in auteur television. And that's yeah. really rare, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe it's a, yeah. it's a newer thing that's happening more and more where a director will direct all the episodes of, uh, you know, Escape from Denimora or whatever, you know, all these things. Um, so maybe my hope is that if she continues on with this big hit show, you know, gets it into, across the finish line with a successful season two, then HBO or somebody else will be like, okay, Ms. Arnold, what do you want to do from scratch? in, in yeah. this lar- longer format thing, uh, and then I would be fascinated to see whatever that is.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I can draw, now that I think about it, I can draw a line, because I have seen Fish Tank and American Honey, so I feel like I can draw a line between the Sasha Lane character in American Honey and the Katie Jarvis character in Fish Tank to the Bonnie character, like that is a character that Andrea Arnold is more interested in than she is in a Celeste or a Madeline. Um, and so it's not to say that there isn't plenty of room for Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon in the season, because there certainly is. But you know, the writing is certainly there to support Zoe Kravitz's character, and and the fact that Andrea Arnold might be more interested in her character, you know, is kind of fascinating to me. And yeah, I, I like to Sonia's point. Of course, like usually, a director's style is not what over you know you hand off. Off a TV show from episode to episode from season to season. But yeah, I think of what Jean-Marc Vallée did in the same realm as I think of what Carrie Fukunaga did with True Detective Season 1, where it's just sort of like the the impeture of like this particular style is there and do you take a hard turn away from it to your own thing or do you try to to match it, And I feel like Andrea Arnold is trying to match it or with his editing or with the musical choices or whatever it might be. And, um, and that's interesting to me. That's, that's, that's fascinating.
2: Another thing I think worth talking about with Bonnie, Zoe Kravitz's character is that she's the only black character. I mean, well, there's Maren Dungey's
1: character who's the investigator, but... Bonnie's and Bonnie's the, mom shows up uh, for at least one episode. For one
2: episode. But I mean, she's the only black person who lives in Monterey. Like the Which every, her mom
1: points out, actually, when she right. comes to visit. She's like, I haven't seen any other black people here, which is like accurate.
2: Right, exactly. And I think that I almost wonder if... HBO, when thinking about the season was sort of like, well, we have our bases covered with the rich white blonde women. Like we know how to tell that story. We have that down. But with Bonnie, and I think to a degree with Jane, Shailene Woodley's character too, there are there's some pieces that are just like a little bit less easy to access because they're not quite as plugged into this like sort of glitzy, um, showy world. And I, and I feel like that's really, I mean, I was actually surprised how much the episodes I saw dug into the racial difference of Bonnie with the other characters. I mean, she says outright at some point, she was like, how can I like, how am I going to feel like solidarity with you guys? Like, how are we on the same page? Um, And I thought that You know, that was one of the main criticisms of the first season. I think that the criticism was kind of there uh, if you were, you know, just looking at the makeup of this place and how everyone was treated. But it certainly feels like it's more part of the text now that they're like really going to talk about the fact that Bonnie is the only black person in Monterey.
3: Yeah. And my hope is that uh, what I loved about the first season was it started and you thought, okay. Here's an interestingly filmed but otherwise fairly conventional story about like the, you know, voracious competitiveness of upper class white women in a in an enclave. You know, we've seen this a th- with a murder thrown in, sure. We've seen this a thousand times before. But at the end, and maybe I don't know if you, you all disagree, but I, by, by the end, I was like, wow, this was actually about something a lot more than I thought. It wasn't about them fighting. It was about them coming together and finding unity through struggle and in their difference and, and in their sameness and all that. So my hope is that with these further questions being asked about Bonnie, about Jane to some extent, is maybe Arnold will get there and and David E. Kelly and Leon Moriarty will get to that other grand summation or summative point, whatever that might be for this season. Because that's really why I think the first season worked so well, is that by the end it revealed itself to be about much more than its component parts.
0: Yeah. The other the other thing I want to mention about season two that feels a little different to me is it feels like and you know maybe I'm I'm like creating subtext where there is none but it feels like you know Nicole Kimmon and, and Laura Dern got a lot of the performative attention in season one Nicole Kidman got you know the awards and and Laura Dern got like the memes and stuff like that <laughs> and, and then and then Reese was so great but sort of like you know her character Madeline is you know I think they added the extramarital affair in season one to her character to make it even more interesting but like. she's still sort of, like, in a more neutral position than than some of the other women. And then I feel like in season two, my guess, given, like, Reese's uh, exec producer role in the show, is that she was like, give me more. (laughs) I want to be even more in this season. And so there's a lot there's a lot more like crisis and emotion and and room for, for Reese to be like flex her acting chops, uh, at least in the episodes that I've seen in season two than in season one. So it's not – she's not just doing like her lily blonde election up to 11 sort of thing. She's doing – she's modulating with this other stuff too. And that's like – that's sort of the point is like I did like the end of season one, but it felt – incorrect to leave them happily on the beach after like what they did. Mm -hmm. And so this this like telltale heart sort of aspect of a season two, I think that, you know, given that that's what they're going with, which is like, how does the weight of what we did impact us? um, I think that's that's a great thing to explore. The
3: telltale Zippo. (laughs)
0: I <laughs> love it I mean the fact that she gets to go toe-to-toe with Meryl Streep in these first two episodes like she
1: just has these great like expressions on her face when she's being like insulted to her face and I, I love the energy of those scenes between them and it, it, it gets that thrill that was in the very beginning of Big Little Lies where it's like oh my god all these actresses are together in one place and throwing Marilyn there it's, it's the exact effect they wanted where it just amps up the excitement of seeing them together
0: and I, and I suppose I don't need to find space for the men in Big Little Lies, but I do want to shout out Adam Scott. And, and Alexander Sarsgaard is in a lot of this season via flashbacks. Yeah, way more than I expected. Uh, <laughs> flashbacks and dreams and, and videos recorded and stuff like that. You know, he also won awards for his performance, so they found a way to include him in season two. But like, uh, but you he's know, like the guys haunting the show. them too, yeah, which is so cool. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah you're great. right.
2: Adam Scott's incredible also in this season. Um, Shailene Woodley was kind of a, she was my probably my weakest link in the first season, which is not to say she was was bad at all, but I felt the, the least positive about her performance. I have to say in this season, she impresses me. Um, there was one scene in particular where she's talking to her son and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm really invested and I really believe this and I hadn't felt that exactly with her
1: before. So that also speaks well, I think, to uh, the evolution of the cast. Speaking of larger memes, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a moment in episode two where she just like screams through gritted teeth. I'm not not going to be rich, which is uh, it's amazing. It's like the there's so many pleasures to be had in the whole thing, Uh, even if like I like you guys, I think I'm curious about where the story is going to go and how they're going to land it. Well, we'll probably talk about Big Little Lies again as the season goes on, uh, Sonia, we uh, where will... And where yeah. else will we be talking yeah, about it? I don't know. I can't think of anywhere
3: else.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Uh, Joanna, where will you be talking about Big Little Lies?
0: Uh, Richard and I will be talking about Big Little Lies every week on the Still Watching podcast. So you guys should tune in for even more of our thoughts. Um, I'm really invested in Sonia Sonia's unified theory of bangs uh, in Big Little Lies season two and how, how like if you look Andrea Arnold has like Betty Page bangs. So I feel like this is Andrea Arnold's oh. like sneaky tactic for getting bangs to be like, and I am a, I am a bang haver so is Kitty Rich, so like we're, yeah. we're pro-bang people, but like, uh, yeah there's there's a bang agenda in Big Little Lies season yeah, so two you, that we will Yeah, so you said they discussing. were bringing bangs back. They never went away, thank I you am, very much. I am so sorry. My <laughs> mistake.
2: No, I, I was really surprised because they changed, uh, they changed Jane's hair shailene woodley's hair so it's like she has really solid dark bangs and i was wondering if it's supposed to make her look a little bit more like celeste nicole kinman who has the she has the same bangs as she did the first season and then meryl streep shows up and she's got these bangs it's uh and i was like what's happening you're surrounded by bangs i mean (laughs) you think about the
1: hair i mean like reese witherspoon like her hair looks so far as i can tell just like her regular hair but it just looks incredible and it suits right. the character for her hair to look incredible at all times but you just think about how much effort goes into making that hair for everybody look the way that it does on oh the my show. god
2: laura Dern's hair which is oh just like god.
0: radiant flowing locks yeah it's wild it is the most fantastical thing about big little lies because they are on a windswept <laughs> uh, seaside town and their hair is never tangled so you know so
1: now we're going to share an interview that I did with Alan Yang, who is one of the co-creators of Amazon's Forever. He's also a co-creator of Master of None with these days sorry. He's got, you know, he's been working in television since uh, Parks and Recreation and has kind of watched the entire industry change. Uh, and between Master of None, Forever, and then his upcoming show with Apple, uh, he's working for all of the big new uh, streaming contenders. So he's kind of seen it all. Um, so I talked to him about forever and about how he built that show, which I thought was this gem with Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen that maybe didn't get quite as much attention as it deserved, partly because the entire premise was kind of a spoiler and they kept it under wraps. So we talked about what that process was like and then how they made the show. So, uh, let's listen to that conversation. Okay. So Alan Yang, thank you so much for joining, uh, us on Little Gold Men to talk about forever.
4: Thank you for having
1: me. I wanted to start getting kind of meta about how the show was rolled out because you did a lot of interviews when it debuted and there was this whole secrecy around the show, which you guys, I think, really deliberately did to kind of uh, hide the reveals of where the show went. But looking back on that, how did that feel rolling the show out in that way? Like being able to keep things to yourselves but also being like, just just watch the show. We can't really tell you what it's about, but watch it. Did did that feel good (laughs) in the process?
4: It felt good, yeah. And it was really, I felt really lucky because... Um, Amazon and Universal were cool with it. You know, I think a lot of times the studios and the networks are tempted to give the audience as much information as possible. I mean, you see it in those trailers where it's a tiny mini version of the entire movie. And it's like, well, why do I need to watch the movie? now? You just gave away seven plot points. So it was really important to us because the show essentially changes form three times in the first three episodes and is essentially a different show uh, in every episode up until the fourth episode um, that we had to hide the ball. And so then it obviously poses some issues and, and obviously the marketing department is like, well, what do we have? And we're like, it's a show about a marriage and we're pitching it. And, it's <laughs> and you have two my stars,
0: mo- so sure. Yeah, exactly.
4: Well, that, that was what really helped too, right? Because it's Maya and Fred and people know them and they love them. And so you put them on a billboard and it's like, yeah, I'll watch that show. It's two really funny people and we'll see where it goes. And, and the, one of the most gratifying thing, things about the whole process was people coming up to me, still coming I, Someone came up to me last week and was like, I saw your show, and I was so surprised over and over again. And how <laughs> often do we get to do that? You know, no, there's no surprises anymore. There's nothing. Everyone knew, spoiler alert, Game of Thrones finale, everyone seemed to know that Brain was going to become the king. Like, it sure, literally, like, turn. everything is spoiled, everything's spoiled. And so with this show, I like that we are kind of a little show that was flying under the radar. People tuned in and I think we're genuinely surprised because we took some weird, weird ass turns.
1: Well, how does flying under the radar work? I mean, in what like both binge culture where it's like if you don't get watched in the first weekend and everyone talking about it, like sometimes it feels like you don't exist, and just this this world of peak TV where like there's so many shows to pick out of it. Do you just kind of like have to learn how to be patient and say like people will find our show, like it exists for what it is and, and step back from it?
4: Yeah, I think you have to do the best you can because to me, unless you're a Marvel movie or you know something enormous like that, I mean, look, there's not even really a TV show that's filling the Game of Thrones void, right? So oh, yeah. I think what you have to do, especially when you're making a show like Forever or a show like Master of None, it's you, you make something that you hope is high quality and hopefully is filling some void, some niche, some – space in the cultural marketplace that is interesting and unique and then really for you for me it's it's reviews and word of mouth and and that's pretty much everything these days it's like it's that's why i show like fleabag or show like 1015 or show you know these shows again may not have giant stars in them to begin with but people seem to be able to find them and i i hope that forever falls in that category i hope that you know we you know we got. We were lucky enough to get good reviews, and you know I think we got pretty positive word of mouth. So um, that's that's where you have to live. I think it, it, I think the age of the giant television event is is if not dying is reserved to a few big budget things, kind of like in movies. And yeah. So where, where you want to live is hey, we made a really good show, and, and, and that's what happens.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't want you to give away, like, the House Secrets, but Netflix famously, like, doesn't reveal their internal numbers even to the people who make shows. Does Amazon work any differently? Do you have any better sense of who's watching Forever than Master of None?
4: I can't give you the House Secrets for either of those places because they don't (laughs) tell me the House Secrets. Uh, That's (laughs) That's, like, legit, like, we were, like, asking, you know, we've asked, like, Netflix is like, we don't tell David Fincher what what House of Cards gets. It's like, well, okay, they're never going to tell me (laughs) anything. So, uh, yeah, no, it's more like, you know, they, they like the show, and then that, that thats you know, that's basically all you want, you know. So, well, so after
1: coming it, from network TV with Parks and Rec, which kind of famously like had like low but devoted fan base, and I don't know how much time you spent sweating over the Nielsen numbers, but that's got to be sort of freeing.
4: Yeah, it totally is. And 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 that was what what I told Matt Hubbard, the, my co-creator on Forever, was I remember, you know, we worked on Parks and Rec for a year together, and. I'm not gonna lie. We would come in on Friday morning and we'd be bummed out because we got a 1.5 or whatever, yeah. you know. And and by the way, 1.5 well, would be massive now. It would be a <laughs> giant. Know. Hit. It would be like what? I still remember this season three premiere of Master. Uh, uh, sorry, of Parks and Rec. We got a 3.2, and we're like, oh, it's not that good. It's a pretty big drop off. <laughs> the the like that would be a massive hit now. But but yeah, it was. We we were watching the numbers because that show was on the brink of cancellation every season. Mm-hmm. I mean, it boggles the mind now looking back and seeing the cast and, and, you know, it was, you know, it was a great show. It was fun to work on. And it was just about to get canceled every year. It's
1: insane. Did you feel that stress just being like, do I have to go look for another job? Because like as a writer, like you really are beholden to like what writer's room will have you. And at that point, like you need, you need that job, right? Yes,
4: absolutely. And, and, and honestly, I felt bad for Mike too because it was, I still, I mean, it might've been the end of season two or the beginning of season three when we got pushed to mid season, which, Generally is a harbinger of bad things to come, yeah. and so I think we all went out for drinks, and we were like, "Well, this might be it." And, and and it was a bummer because we felt like the show was hitting its stride, and we loved the cast, we loved the writers' room, and all the people we were working with, and you know it was great working with Mike. So um, yeah, we were all bummed, and then it went on for another hundred episodes <laughs> or whatever. So so yes, and so that's a long way of saying it is incredibly liberating. It is for me. I, so what? Going back to what I told Hubbard. I said, look, man, the reviews are our ratings. Think about that. Let's make the show we want to make. Let's make something bold. Let's make something original. Let's make something that no one's ever seen before because, honestly, you know, you and I are never even going to see how many people have seen the show. Yeah. And so so let's make it for us and let's make it for people who have tastes taste similar to ours and, and let the chips fall where they may. And, and that's great. You know, that like, I, I don't think we – look anything's possible because David Lynch got Twin Peaks on ABC, but <laughs> I hesitate to think that a network would have put on a show as, as strange as Forever on.
1: Yeah. Well, did it take making the first season of Master of None to realize just how much freedom there is in the world of streaming? I mean, like the good place is obviously like doing big stuff on NBC, but like when you see Forever, you see Master of None, like that stuff that really, like you said, doesn't feel like it could be on network, but did you know how much freedom you had when you started on Master of None or did that have to succeed first?
4: It really helps, and, and it helped in a couple ways. I mean, keep in mind, when we sold Master of None to Netflix, they had two shows. Yeah. They, You know, they were making House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, and I think they were licensing Lilyhammer or something. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, But that's how early that was. And so, God, think about how many... They, there's a show on Netflix every 20 seconds of a new show. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's a scientific number. But but it, it legitimately... Um, yeah, it, it was exciting. And, and as we developed Master... Um, that first season, you know, the fact that episode two has no characters in it from the first episode except for Aziz is insane. <laughs> like
1: that is, you
4: it, that that you know, that was breaking people's brains four years ago, five years ago, or at least it was breaking our own brains. Um, and then season two, we took it even farther, right? Yeah. And, and it, was, it was, you know, you would normally get pushback. Hey, do you want, should this episode be a a, a, a takeoff on an Italian neo-realist film from the 50s should it be in black and white should we do an episode that where where Aziz isn't in it at all and it follows three you know immigrant characters all around New York and yeah and, and, and there's eight minutes of it is silent you know <laughs> like that that kind of stuff is you know was really exciting and then you see that's what people like the most about the show is yeah. when you're experimenting and when you're you are um pushing yourself and 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 doing things again that you haven't seen before and and are exciting to people and that's what that's what excites me right i you know innovating and and and, and challenging myself um, along with sort of the meat and potatoes character storytelling uh that that you know is also is also very important to is how can you fuse the two and and, and care about the characters and care about the story, but also push yourself formally and, and in terms of, uh, visually and, and all of these different aspects of film.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys took this big leap in forever as well, but I think the sixth episode is the bottle episode, right? Mm-hmm. It's like almost at the very end with the uh, six. Yeah with a Hong Chow and a Jason Mitchell who's like there's been some allegations about him that have come out since then but I want to talk about this episode specifically because it's this bottle episode about like two characters who we haven't seen before as you mentioned from Master of None and it seems like that would come directly from that experience that you say okay audiences go with you if you have something that's totally similar um, so like was that the idea just to really get the audience that far into the season and say okay we're going to do something really different
4: yeah absolutely I mean what an ultimate after three or four rug pulls in the first three episodes how about another you know how about a <laughs> Super, just like, when you an, thought you
1: were comfortable. Exactly. An unbelievable
4: curveball. And to me, when Matt and I were talking about the show and brainstorming ideas, that idea was one of the things that just kept us going. We often said to ourselves, this episode is the reason to make the show in some ways. To you have know, a
1: standalone I, episode within the series. Yes.
4: And to, uh, an episode that takes advantage of our premise and... In what other show can you show another couple's experience and have it span 40 years and have your main character watch the whole thing and have that influence her life like that yeah, is yeah. that to me is so and, and obviously the the theme of that story and the way it goes about and you know you know they, they did great. The actors did a great job and, and, and it, it, to me, the heartbreak of that story, the theme of regret, that is one of the themes that imbues the entire series in to have the ability to tell that story. And when we pitched that idea to Amazon very early on, it, I'm very grateful for the fact that they said, wow, that's like that may be our favorite story of the year. Let's just do it. You know, mm-hmm. and, and that's a huge swing because Maya's in it for two seconds.
1: And With like Kat, the most heartbreaking look on her face. Yeah, man, I so mean, the by, whole, way, by the way, she comes. she
4: came and shot that first, like, Monday morning. It's like, wow, you just came in and killed it, and then <laughs> and I was like, wow, we have, like, we have the doll, okay, we're dolling in, we're dolling, holy
1: shit, okay,
4: and you're gone. <laughs> and now we shoot the episode. And that's but, why I yeah. hire a pro. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when <laughs> I still remember watching the first cut of that episode, The Editor's Assembly, and I was really excited because, you know, obviously there were trims to be taken, and there were imperfections in the episode, but was largely working and then at the end that shot of Maya is for was for me a, a holy shit moment in terms of her acting and her facial you know her facial acting in that yeah. scene and 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 that conveyed everything and then her and Catherine at the end again a very strange episode to shoot because I shot the scene of her and Catherine I, I think either weeks or like a month before we shot the rest oh, of yeah. the episode Yeah, yeah so, so we were on. I think we were on stage in a fake version of their house, and I'm like, I know this is weird, but I just need to shoot you saying, "I want to go to Oceanside," and that's <laughs> it. right? And they're like, "Okay." So we should, again, we shot that in you know half an hour, or an hour, and and then you know weeks later, we shot the entire episode. But it did end up cutting together in a way that I was very satisfied with.
1: Yeah. And I know you talked about how you uh, gave the actors or maybe t- talked with the writers room about the um, the Sunrise Sunset Trilogy, Richard Linklater movies as an example of like these dialogue heavy scenes of watching characters build a relationship. But but that whole idea of like watching people talk to each other and fall in love and learn everything about them just through dialogue, it's really hard. Like we've all seen bad examples of it. So when you're sitting down and writing something like that, like what do you know, like what are the anecdotes that are banal but meaningful? Like where do you where do you hammer that kind of stuff down other than just watching before sunrise and saying, okay, that's Perfect. I'm do that. <laughs> Yeah,
4: yeah I, 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 I recommend and also don't recommend watching those because it's so frustrating how perfectly <laughs> wrought they are, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, they have the benefit. By the way, they have the benefit of, I think, honestly, years of experience doing it. Because I, from what I understand, Richard Linklater worked with Ethan Hawke and he worked with Julie Delpy and they, they just – they lived it. and, yeah, and they I all wrote they the all,
1: together. Exactly.
4: They collaborated and made it feel natural, and there were probably a lot of rehearsals, maybe even weeks, months of rehearsals, which, honestly, we don't have the luxury of doing that. So I think what you want to find is, first of all, a naturalism, and second of all, specificity, right? So um, to me, the best stuff is the personal stuff. So if there's any part of you that can incorporate some aspect of your life into the scenes, I think that often helps because those real-life conflicts, there's just something about them, something ineffable, something indescribable that you're able to put in there, some magic. And, and barring that, maybe it's your friend's story or one of your writer's stories. So um, honestly, like there are some specifics in there that I'm really happy with. Like One detail was um, we had uh, Andre's character... Um, he's, he's a black guy and he grew up in Monterey park, which is a majority Asian suburb of Los Angeles. And I was like, well, that would be really interesting. That's kind of based on, um, our location manager, who was Manny Padilla, who, um, you know, he's Latino, but he's like, man, it's so interesting. He's like, he's like, I've never worked with an Asian showrunner. I was like, yeah, that's interesting. He's uh, he's like, (laughs) no, he's he's like, all my friends are Asian. I was like, why? He's like, I grew up in Monterey Park. And he's like, all my friends are Asian. I was like, they were Asian bullies, they were Asian nerds, they were Asian jocks, like all these, you know, I was like, wow, that is actually would be weird to, like, to live in America and you're a minority in a majority Asian school. Like, Don't I you want to watch
1: a, a show set at that high school? Well,
4: I will say I am, devel- I'm actually <laughs> developing a show like that. So, oh my so
1: God, I, breaking I news wanna,
4: great. I do want to see that show. So yeah, that's, that's deep, deep in development, but but yeah, I would. Uh, you know, it essentially the idea of the show is like an Asian freaks and geeks. Like so, um, you know, the the so something a specific detail like that, and it's like him getting bullied by an you know, Asian guy is. is There's something interesting about that. And then we drew from Hong Chau's actual life. She, you know, she we wrote the character to be from Kentucky. She's actually from Louisiana, and so there was something about her life that we could kind of lock into. So um, I think it's a combination of factors. You know, personal details. Um, specificity and having the conversations. I I prefer conversations that feel natural and not very very sort of pitter patter ping uh, 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 ping-pong-y, sort of a little stagier, right. That's just mm-hmm. my own personal preference and and I think you see that in the in the summer sunset movies um, where it just feels it feels like you're you're with the characters like you're fly on the wall and you you don't feel the hand of the creator the writer the director as much. That's that's what I prefer.
1: You know what those Lincoln movies have the advantage of that you don't, though, is they're all, like wandering around these beautiful European yeah, cities, I mean, and you like, on the stairs. Well, we talked
4: about that, and we're like, well, you know what, we're in a house in Riverside, and God bless Riverside, it's a great town, it's where I grew up, but honestly, an empty model home in Riverside is not really the, the same. 70s as, model yeah, home. Yeah, exactly, it's, it's not the streets of Europe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, that's another thing where it's like, oh, it's a beautiful walk and talk, and now they're like, overlooking a river and now they're like stealing a bottle of wine and a picturesque bar. Like, no, we, didn't, we don't get any of that. We're they like, get mini golf. Exactly. They're, it's like we're married to this location. And so that made the challenge even harder and that put the onus on the actors even more. And so um, I, I'm very happy with that episode and, 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 and we've gotten such positive feedback from that one and, and we're both really, really happy with that.
1: Yeah. I thought it was really interesting watching it the second time to talk to you that I was thinking about how the show stars Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph, who are mixed-race actors. The show isn't really about race at all, and you've talked about how like not everything you do is about race, and that makes sense. But this episode is in a lot of ways. It has them talking really frankly about that. Um, and I wondered, and this might just be like fan theory thing, like if it was a way of making it clear that it was set in the current life and not in the afterlife, if that helped set it apart, or if that was just part of the like dynamic you wanted to have between these characters of a Vietnamese woman and a black man.
4: Yeah, it, it mostly came from the the latter. I think um, it it mainly came. It's actually a funny thing. I think a, a journalist at, did ask me, "Why isn't this show about race?" I'm like, "Did you watch episode 106? <laughs> yeah, you know, first of all, my and Fred are mixed race, as you mentioned, but but also, yeah, this one is. In, 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 you know, I haven't seen this story. You know, I just oh, haven't yeah. seen it. And so, so yeah, and and we the specific actors we used were great, but we also chose them because their backgrounds were interesting and. The specific interactions, their conversations about race, I think add a certain level of frisson to their relationship, and there's a little bit of bonding. You know, we, um, you know, Colleen McGinnis uh, helped write some of the episode with us, and she's mixed race, and you know, we all have these kind of specific viewpoints on race, and so um, she, we put that in there, and it, it serves. By the way, that's one advantage we had over the Linklater movies is. It's an additional interesting uh, aspect to their their, their characters. Yeah. You know, they could talk about that, and they could talk about being married to white people and how that's different for them. And you know, there's no judgment here as to whether it's better or worse, but it is something they are able to bond uh, over. And and I, you know, obviously, I have a little bit of experience um, writing about race and, and, and tackling issues uh, about related to race in, in television. You know, I haven't done Master of None. Um, and i again as i said don't want to do that in every show every movie i ever do yeah. but it, you know those observations are interesting and and there's only so many creators who sort of have that perspective and 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 are able to express that point of view in their work and so that's that's one of the things that that you know i i, I take pride in
1: yeah, I mean, it seems like the more that people of color and people from different backgrounds are able to make things, the more that we get things that talk about race without, like, capital T talking about race. Like, like the, the line between, like, colorblind, everyone's the same, and Green Book, there's so much in between there. And it feels like this fits into that, where you can, like, have it be part of the story, but not what the whole thing is about.
4: Exactly. it is the The, the rule we sort of used was... Hey, it, it's if, if we're having dinner, how much are we talking about it? And yeah, it might come up. It's just not going to be the whole dinner. You know, yeah. we're also going to talk about our relationships and, and our work and, and and sports and dumb stuff like that. You know, so so it's it's that level.
1: Yeah, and the best flirting of that episode is about like all the weird shit in this house, which is it's a universal fact. Yeah, of- <laughs> the universal
4: thing, which is like a whole, I mean, I, I don't even know who came up with that, but the cover the thing, in the cupboard was so funny to me when, <laughs> they, when they discover. You know, she's like, it's a music box. I don't know who wrote that joke. You know, I mean, These things get lost in the writer's room, but it was yeah. really
1: funny to me. So when you were when the first season came out, you kind of were vague about the idea of a season two possibly existing. It doesn't sound like there's been anything official about it, but is that something that's still in your brain? Or are you, I mean, you're obviously developing a lot of other stuff too.
4: Yeah, we'd be open to it. I mean, me and Matt really love working on the show. We love working with Maya and Fred. So, you know, we're all in a text thread. We have, <laughs> we have a text thread called Forever Friends Forever, so you never know. <laughs> um, but uh yeah, I, look we had a great time, we had a great time working with Universal and Amazon and so you never know. But as we did mention, you know, I feel like that last shot is a beautiful coda to the show. Yeah. But I'd be open to do another season. So 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 we'll talk about it. It may be one of these things where if we're lucky we get to do one down the road and, and that's kind of how we are with Master of Done as well. It's like we kind of have an open invitation to do another season or do more down the road. And and I i I mean, look, that is an unbelievably, uh, you know, an unbelievably, you know, fortunate situation. So we'll see. I mean, look, we had a great time doing it. And and I feel like people enjoyed the show. So maybe.
1: Well, is it weird, like, going from having been on, like, regular network shows, like, with South Park and Parks and Records, like, you need ideas, you got to break the next season, to, like, having something marinating in the back of your head? Like, it, it's freeing, but, like, you never get to let go of it, either.
0: It's
4: wonderful! <laughs> <laughs> no, I see it. I, it, it look, I, I, I would never denigrate the, the schedule of those shows. They're just different. It, it, it's just different. And, yeah. and the nature of the shows is different. And there's something lovely about being on every week and having people talk about the show and getting the feedback. and but there's also something really difficult about hey we're doing episode 16 of 22 and we didn't plan out the whole season because it's impossible you know uh-huh, so uh-huh. so you're kind of doing standalones and you're doing you're coming up with different character pairings and and you're just kind of doing them for the sake of doing an episode that's a different challenge right so what we've sort of gotten to do is you know there it's as has been mentioned many times before in cultural criticism the line between film and television is blurring because it's becoming more like you are thinking of a movie idea except it's a little longer and this discrete idea is a thing that you can be really passionate about and make it for a year or two years and it doesn't have to be the next 10 years of your life and you yeah. don't have to make 180 of them and and so that's that's cool and and by the way i you know would never rule out making 180 of something like it could be fun as well, but, but, but the, the, you know, certainly the last few shows I've made and and this new one, little America is an anthology series, which is its own beast. So um, I've just had a lot of fun. You know, I've been having these meetings with with different places and, and, and people have been asking about what I kind of want to do in the future. And I'm like, I want to, I want to explore new areas. I, I feel like I'm genre agnostic and I just want to make, shit that I love like really like that,
1: that's it <laughs> well in between Netflix and then Amazon and now Apple for Little America like you're really covering the basis of all the streamers like you can you just go from place to place and continue making different things for all of them and then just uh, run the town
4: yeah exactly I plan yeah I plan to be making a you know a, a Google Maps show I plan to be making <laughs> you know, a, a Skype show you know we'll use the technology yeah oh, yeah Uber show <laughs> um, but that, that's been again. I, I feel really lucky to be able to do that, and, and I've had, by the way, had good experiences at all three, and and, hey. and um, you know feel like we're getting to make good shows. I've been watching little Mary cuts and, and, and been really happy with them. So um, yeah, that's that's really cool, man. And, and and to be able to be on the different services is really fun because you never know where people are going to be. You know, it, it, it's it's uh, it's it's nice to be in different areas.
1: Did you go to that big Apple upfronts thing they did where they announced I all did. the shows? Oh my god, <laughs> that did. was crazy! Because you, I think it was just Kamel on stage for that, right? I'm not yeah, just remembering he, that you were there. Well,
4: okay, I was in the audience. Uh, me and Lee Eisenberg, who's a co-creator of the show, were in the audience, and Emily Gordon was there as well. And, um, we let Kamel talk because he's one of the funniest people in the world. And, me and he Lee was are writers, great because there was—I so. <laughs> so, don't want to like—I
1: don't want to like knock anybody, but like there were some stilted presentations, and then there was Kamel who's like, "Oh, you know how to talk in front of well,
4: people." Well, Kamel comes out and kills it. You know, it, it, it they put. And, and, you know it was it was it was interesting it was almost like people were giving their own little TED talks and it was like well oh if gosh. I'm gonna watch that like Kumail's gonna kill it because he's one of the best stand-ups in the world so yeah. so yeah it was a little bit unfair having him uh, having him compete with the other people but he yeah he had just an ease of, about him and and you could tell he was you really believed in the show and was really proud of it so we were really happy to get to be one of those shows you know they only let five or six shows go up there yeah and we were thrilled to be one of them because you know we're not produced by Spielberg or, you know, Oprah Winfrey or J.J. Abrams, you know, were produced by me. So so it's a different <laughs> level of dude. And like all Kamala's
1: of all, great, but he's not Reese Witherspoon. Exactly.
4: He's not Aquaman yet. But, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's so, so yeah, we were thrilled to be up there. And, and, you know, we really felt like from the beginning, Apple was such a great fit for us, because as they explained to us, um, the sort of ethos of the show and the the themes and the, the, the yeah the, the sort of ethic of the show was very similar to what they want to project in their service and and it's it's look we're not making glee uh, uh, sentimental episodes of this show but there is an element of hope and there's an element of America being a place that people come to to honestly fulfill their dreams and 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 and, and, and strive for. For freedom and, and what they look and, and, and being able to achieve what they want to achieve in life. So there is that undercurrent in the show, even though some of the episodes are, are a little bit more melancholy and some of them are a little funnier. Um, that was kind of an undercurrent of the entire series, and so we felt like Apple was a great fit.
1: This feels so pat, but like just something hopeful seems so nice. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there was the, the irony was
4: not lost on us when we were pitching, <laughs> and I believe it was about the same time that the president was uh,
1: oh, I'm sure, locking yeah.
4: people up in cages. So. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was an interesting time to be pitching that show, and we got a lot of relieved looks on our executive's <laughs> faces. We're like, "Thank God, you know, this makes me feel good about our country
1: in some cool. way." Yeah. Uh, so this uh, podcast is really award season focused. Like we we do a lot of Oscar episodes, and we're kind of an Emmy season now. And um, I was watching your Emmy speech from a little while ago. I'm just curious about like having gone through that Emmy's gauntlet, and like now you're kind of going through it again with Forever. Um, what did you learn about like the television industry or how you handle this kind of thing? Like being a little bit removed from an Emmy win, what, what did you get from it?
4: Uh, you know, I I it, it just to me it strikes you how fast things move. To me, you know, it mm-hmm. really and it went from. It, it, it's a sense of possibility and I don't mean that in a you know in a, in, a, in a sappy way, I hope, but honestly like we were a little show. you know Master of none was a little show and, and it all happened really fast. and I, I remember um, I don't know how much of a priority we were for Netflix when we you know before the show came out. I, I know, you know obviously they're fans of Aziz and, and, and you know they liked him, but you know I don't know that the expectations were huge for us. And so the show came out. And honestly, even before the Emmys, you know, I think first season, I don't think we got anything at the Golden Globes. I don't think we really got Writer's Guild or Director's Guild. And then suddenly we were nominated for Emmys, and then suddenly we won. (laughs) And, and, you know, it it, it just seemed to happen fast. And, you know, suddenly you're on stage and, you know, Matt LeBlanc is handing you the trophy. So it's very (laughs) very, very surreal, first of all, but also how fast it happens. And I think, you know, a a similar thing, like – we were kind of on that journey with, I think, Mr. Robot was season one as well, mm-hmm. and so we kept seeing those guys around at, at all the different events and stuff. And I remember Rami Malek, I think, won that year, and now he wins an Oscar. It's like it just happens fast. Like he was an unknown, he was yeah. a complete unknown actor of Egyptian descent, and it's kind of cool to how fast all that stuff happens. And. And so, you know, I, in the same way, we were a little show, and and, and and it ended up working out. And I hope, you know, really, I would I would love for there to be some momentum behind Maya because I think her performance in Forever's is 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 really something extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And and um, I think she's showing colors and she's showing layers that she doesn't always get to show off. And and for someone to be as funny and as emotionally um, vulnerable and 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 um, you know, nuanced and real all at the same time is, I, I thought was something I was really, really excited about. And, and, you know, I'd love to get love for Fred. I'd love to get love for our guest actors as well, but, um, you Haven't know, seen for, her. yeah, for sure. And, 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 and uh, look, she's a two-time Oscar nominee. This, and it, it, it it's really, that, that's not a fluke, you know? Um, <laughs> it, the, so I was really thrilled with the level of actors we were able to get. And, and, and have them do this weird project. It's it, it's it was really, we feel, again, we feel really fortunate. You know, Hubbard and I were like, you know, we're two comedy writers and we wrote this weird thing. So, um, yeah, to get actors with that level of dramatic chops is, is really cool.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, Alan Yang, thank you so much for calling in and talking to us. And um, congrats on Forever. And, um, I mean, you got so much else coming up. So we'll be seeing you again really soon, right?
4: I hope so. Thank you so much, Katie. It was fun.
1: That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks for listening. Keep finding us on VanityFair.com, where we've got uh, writing about Big Little Lies Season 2 uh, and all kinds of other things. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaws, And Joanna? Wrote this And Sonia? Sonia Soraya. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs.
3: And this week's award for the best reason to buy and use all of our sponsors' products goes to Katie Rich.
1: I'm not not going to be rich!